Hi, this is Jim Lobato. I'm the president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on BizTalk Radio Show. I started BizTalk so you can have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group, which is in the business of helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with their sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities and then align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I was thinking about a program here actually a couple weeks ago. I couldn't make it in last Sunday. but um, So this is the program that I was going to do two weeks ago and uh, saved it, I guess, for tonight. So as we look at uh, wrapping this year up, usually our thoughts turn to how to make next year better than what we did this year. And with the holidays coming up, we always tend to be pressured between what we have to get done at work and wrap up the year by the family commitments we all have made. And sometimes those get in conflict with each other. It just means you're just kind of busy this time of year. And so I was thinking about what could we talk about in a program to get you a little bit focused on what to do about 2011. You're probably focused on what you're going to do at home, what you're going to do for Christmas. You have those plans in the bag. So let's focus what you can do going into 2011. Now, before we do that, there's a couple resources I want to make you aware of. You can go out to the website, biztalkradioshow.com, biztalkradioshow.com, and you can look at Sales Quick Coach, which is under Key Insights, two-minute timeouts to improve your performance if you're involved in sales. And that blog is updated a couple times a month. But if you want, you can send us an email right there. You can register for the Sales Quick Coach, and you can receive a sales tip every Tuesday. And there's some also uh, some free resources such as the five hidden sales weaknesses, how they're costing your company opportunity, margins, and profitability. And that's available for a download. You can also, when you register for that, uh, we'll gladly drop a copy in the mail to you. So there's some free resources to help you out. But the topic at hand, what do you do about next year? And I was thinking about how this wraps up probably 30 years for me being involved in either running companies or helping clients build their companies. And I wondered if your sales meetings in your company sounds something like this. I mean, does the conversation at the sales meeting have the sales manager sitting around looking at his sales producers and saying, well, we're a little short going into this quarter. We're a little short going into this month. or We're a little short ending the year, however you want to put the time period on it. And it says, you know, what we need to do, just go around the room and just tell me where you think you're going to end up. And, you know, they either, this is done remotely over the phone or they actually sit in around the conference room and they just go around the room saying, well, I think I can bring an extra 10 grand in. I think I can do this. And the sales manager diligently writes those numbers down as if they're real and uh, adds them all up and says, well, it looks like we can bring in an extra 100 grand here if we all say what we're going to do and let's just go do it. And without any thought to how real that number may be. So it's just a polling of the people that around the table and I guess it's a, a feel-good type of measure. I never really quite understood, but I know that conversation goes on a lot. Then the sales manager after the sales meeting pulls 
over your top producer and says, you know, Bill, if Bill's the top producer, we're going to need a little bit extra out of you this month to make sure we hit the quarter. And can you go do that for us? And that's what Bill does. He'll put the extra effort in and brings in some extra dollars. Probably not enough to make up, but enough to get you close so everybody feels good about the number they didn't hit and the fake number that all the salespeople gave him. And why is that? Why does that conversation go on month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year? Well, look at who becomes our sales managers. And and I can start, talk from some experience here uh, because most of my career I spent in sales management. But who becomes our top sales manager? It, it's not the, the top producer. Uh, the top producers can't afford the pay cut. And if they accidentally take the sales manager's job, it usually doesn't last that long and they go back to selling because they don't want all the headaches of dealing with the people and actually uh, miss the money they're making. So our sales managers tend to be the almost great ones, the almost good ones. And again, I can speak from experience with this because I had to learn everything about sales. I had to learn how to open the car door. I had to learn how to go in and say hi to somebody. I had to learn how to ask for the order and uh, I got really good at learning that and got good at executing on it. But there were people on the sales teams I worked with, they were either more consistent in terms of producing top revenues or could produce more revenue. And so I was the almost great, just good enough. But our sales managers tend to be the ones that are almost great. I mean, they understand the whole process of sales. They do get, get the experience. Uh, but they're the ones who really want to make a difference in people's lives. See, either you want to make a difference or you don't, especially in the sales world. It's either make a difference or make money, and sometimes it's both. But if you're out there to make a difference, you will tolerate what you have to tolerate in terms of getting performance out of your people. If you're in it for the money, then just stay in sales. So the almost great ones want to make a difference in people's lives, and they take on all the headaches that come with managing and leading a group of people that argumentally are tough to manage and lead. What happens to our mid-tier people? Our mid-tier people have a tendency just to keep taking jobs every two or three years and they keep getting offers to get those jobs because they have the industry experience, but they never really quite perform. But they switch jobs often enough that no one really discovers that they are underperformers until the economy takes a left turn like it did with this recession a couple years ago and they get exposed that they really can't sell in a tough economy. Our bottom tier salespeople tend to move over to operations or in some cases HR. So that's really the career path for salespeople. Top ones stay where they're at, make the money year over year regardless of what's going on in the economy. The near great ones go into sales management. The mid-tier keep switching jobs and the bottom tier end up in operations or HR. And we sometimes wonder why our sales meetings are so dysfunctional. The things you got to remember, this is the first rule. If you want to get your team to overachieve in 2011, you want to have a better year next year than you had this year because 2011 is not going to be a great year. We're going to slug our way out of this economy. So it has to be just better than the year we had. How would we do that? Well, first of all, put your revenue numbers together and be realistic on that. And everybody does that, but they stop there because they say, well, we want to do $2 million, $20 million, $20 million, uh, $100 million. It doesn't matter what the millions are. They just say, this is what we want to do. And then they divide the number up amongst all their salespeople without any consideration to what would have to happen in order to get the money. By the way, for 
those of you listening who aren't driving revenue but you're trying to drive some type of production or you're trying to drive some type of result, it doesn't matter. The principles all apply. Whatever that number you're trying to get to, you know, it could be a decrease in percentage of this. It could be an increase in the number of that. It could be more productivity from your team. The principles are are, are basically all the same. So what, what are the three things you got to keep in mind that are, tend to be foundational to making those numbers come alive? Well, number one, you have to understand the concept of who owns it, who owns the number. Number two, activities come before revenue. And number three, closed ratios remain a constant. So let's talk about the first one. Who owns that number? If you come up with a number, you own it, which means your sales team doesn't own it. If you come up with a productivity percentage, well, this department's going to increase 20%. You go to your people and say, we're going to do this 20%. You own that number. They don't. And unless you're doing the work, then it makes uh, really no sense for you to own that number. You have to have your people own the number. The only way they can own the number is to be part of it. 1997, I had a chance to go to Moscow to work with a radio station there and help them work with their salespeople. It was owned by an American, and he had a Russian counterpart. Now, this is shortly after the Soviet Union fell and uh, communism went out. So free enterprise was trying to get a grasp in Russia and particularly Moscow. So it was a very interesting time. The radio station was in a uh, compound that used to be run by the KGB, and they used to – block the signal from Radio Free Europe. And there's a blast from the past. So it was just interesting to see all the history behind that. And we had a great time when we were there learning that. But what I found interesting was that uh, this, that the that communism by itself uh, is just destined to fail in any society because it just simply doesn't work. And here's why it doesn't work. When I was in Russia, I, I discovered this. It was we, – we stayed in what was – used to be public housing because everybody in Moscow except for the high officials never really owned anything. The state owned everything. So everybody was assigned their apartment where they lived and the – even the – you didn't control the, uh, the, the temperature in your apartment. They would turn on the heat a certain time each uh, fall or going into the winter and turn it off in the spring regardless of what the weather conditions were. Every apartment in Moscow was heated by two heating plants. I want you to think about that for a second. And in your apartment was a radio that only picked up the – obviously the Moscow news. And um, she had no control over those things and you didn't own anything. So we were just on the realms of coming out of communism when I was over there. And it had its lingering effect because things were in disrepair. And the reason where things were in disrepair is because nobody owned anything. And if you don't own it, you're not going to take care of it. So imagine having a society where nobody owns anything. Nothing would get taken care of. So think about your productivity, your revenue number, your department, your company. Who owns that number? If your people don't own it, they're not going to take care of it. In fact, one of the things you want to ask uh, when you're involved in a project or you're involved in doing something, ask that per ask the group that's there with you, who owns this process? Who's responsible for the results? Uh, you'll be shocked when you start asking that question because there'll be five people in the room 
and you ask that question, hey, before we go forward here, we're trying to get this thing done. Uh, who owns this process? They're all, gonna, you're, all five are going to look at each other because they all assume the other person does. So who owns it? That's the first question you want to ask. Now, how do you get your people to own those numbers? Well, people come to work today for their reasons, not yours. If you haven't figured that out, you better figure that one out. In the workplace we're in today, people show up for their reasons. And they want to have their needs met. It's not your father, your father's economy. It's not your father's um, company. It's not your father's work ethic. So get over it. So people come for their reasons. So the question is, what are your reasons? What are you trying to get accomplished? And so one of the things you can do, especially with salespeople, when they're trying to get to own a number, is have them build the number, meaning how much money do you want to make going into 2011? Get that figure straight in their head. Then ask them, what would you do with that money? It's not enough just to make money. What do you want to do with it? Buy the log cabin, buy the new car, go on a vacation. What are you going to do with all the extra funds that you're getting? That's the question to ask yourself. See, most people know they want to make a lot of money, but they don't know what they're going to make the money for. And if you're just making money just to pay the bills, you're not going to be that motivated. So the way to get people to own the number is to have them build their own future because your future is where your focus is at. So what are you focused on? If they're focused on your number, they're not that excited about it. What would you do with the extra funds you're going to make this year? That's the question. Okay, now what's your plan? What would you have to do to get that? See, that brings up our second point that activity comes before revenue. So how much activity would you have to do? Because you can't control a number unless you're printing money in your basement somewhere, you can't control a revenue number. I mean, literally, if you had a printing press and you're printing off $100 bills, that's the only way you can get that revenue. What you can control is how many times you ask people to buy a product. What you can control is the number of ask. So you spend most of your time in sales getting in position to ask. But somehow we forget that when we start leading our sales departments, especially we start leading companies, we put the revenue number out there and we think magically it's just all going to come together. Without going to our people saying, how much are you going to contribute? How does that calculate into money for you? What would you do with that money? How can we put a plan together and ensure that you're going to get that money? Because you get your money, the company gets their money, and that's the money we need that gives oxygen to the whole organization. So activity comes before revenue. How much activity must you do on a daily, weekly basis in order for us to hit the revenue number? The other thing to keep in mind is close ratios. That rounds up the three. Close ratios are nothing more how many times you ask versus how many times you get an order. That's it. And it took me years to figure this out because I used to get a little confused on this one. I said, well, I asked five people to buy this week. Nobody bought. I asked four people to buy next week and then and then I got two people to buy. So what do I calculate who I asked this week to and that's the two. So it's that's 50 percent. You'll drive yourself crazy trying to figure that out. Uh, so I just figured out just keep a tally sheet. It'll, it'll, it'll average out over the month or over the quarter. I mean how many times did you ask and how many times did you get? Those ratios will show up. Here's the other thing to keep in mind on that, that those ratios tend to be constant. It's a constant number unless something comes along to affect it, meaning an economy will affect closing ratios. The economy we've been in uh, lately, the recession, will affect closing ratios. I don't care how good of 
uh, car salesperson you were two years ago, you weren't selling cars in the fall of 08. I don't care how good a real estate salesperson you were, you weren't going to close homes going into January of uh, 09. Just wasn't going to happen. I mean, your close ratios just got shot to heck. So barring any dramatic external force like that, close ratios tend to be constant. And they won't change unless the individual changes because it's nothing more than the reflection of that person's. Their ability to get in front of somebody and ask and the skill it takes to ask somebody to buy. So what is the close ratio? Have you measured that? How many times did you ask? How many times did you get? You need to know that number because it ties back into activity. So you can go to your people and say, yeah, that's great. You want to make you know, 75000 next year, 90000 120000 whatever it is. Right? You want to make 75000 How much activity do you need to make that? And more importantly, how many times do you get in front of somebody and how many times do they say yes? So what's the close ratio on that? Keep in mind, if let's pretend that it's 25% because national average is 25% across all salespeople, all industries, all sales forces. It's about 25%. So if you don't know, use that number. So the 25% means that one out of four are going to buy. Now, here's the magical thing. If you're a salesperson trying to generate $1 million in revenue to make the kind of money you want to make, you're going to go out and say, hey, I commit to the $1 million. You know, I'm going to make 100000 out of that $1 million I sell. Here's what I'm going to do with that 100000 That's great. But keep in mind, you can't focus on the $1 million you're going to go sell if you have a 25% close ratio. You have to go out and focus on the $4 million you're going to ask for because you have to ask for four to get the one. And that's where most of us forget about this, meaning we put our revenue numbers together. We're going to be a $20 million company, right? Well, if you've got a close ratio of you know one out of four, you're really an $80 million ask company because you have to ask for $80 million to get that. Well, excuse me. Math is wrong. 25% close ratio, you're asking for $100 million. So think about the urgency you'd have to have to get in position to ask for $100 million versus asking for $20 million in order to make it work. So anyway, that's what we're looking at. Get those three things together. Who owns it? Activity comes before revenue. And what are the close ratios? I'm just using my iPhone to check my math here. For those of you who are better math than I am, it was right the first time. 25% of $80 million gets you $20 million. So for those of you listening and saying, well, you messed that number up, that's okay. That's why I carry an iPhone that's got a calculator on it. Well, my point is that you have to be able to go back and look at how much revenue you have to ask for to get what you need. So do the math. And if you don't have the close ratio, then you just figure 25% and, and go from there. And if your industry is a little bit slower right now, guess what? <laughs> it's going to take more than that. We calculated one for one of our clients the other day, and it's 33%. So, you know, the close ratio is 33%, which is a little higher than we thought, which is fine, which we adjusted the ask number we're going to do. It adds urgency to everything we do because you have to calculate on top of that what the sales cycle is. How long does it take you from finding somebody and then getting in a position to ask them before they actually give you the check or give you the order? However you want to measure that. Two ways to measure it, when they give you the order or give you the check. I tend to like to count revenue, so I say, well, when the, when the check clears, how long does it take to do that? Because the thing you have to keep in mind is let's pretend, using our numbers, you have to ask for $80 million to get $20 million to hit your revenue numbers for your company. That's fine. 
Okay. Let's say your sales cycle is 90 days from the time you find somebody before the order gets in. Well, if you're going to hit your $20 million revenue mark, then you're going to have to hit it uh, definitely by the end of September because it takes 90 days to run through the sales cycle. So now you really only have about nine months in order to achieve what you want to do. So if you want to add urgency to your sales team, focus on those numbers. Focus on what they need to do to make the kind of money they want to make. What would you do with that? Focus on the fact of who owns that by getting them to do that. Focus on the fact the activity it takes to do that. And focus on the fact that if whatever that ratio is in your sales cycle, you start doing that math, you'll figure out you can't waste the day. You'll start driving into businesses instead of driving by. You'll pick up the phone instead of picking up the coffee cup. You'll do what you need to do because all of a sudden you realize you're behind the eight ball almost constantly. That's why sales is a constant activity business. So those are things to keep in mind to make 2011. They're the fundamentals. And too often, though, we you know, try to do new and fancy things like let's get out and tweet and let's post to the website and let's make sure this is correct and that will solve all of our ir- ills. Well, it helps. But nothing helps more than knowing what the numbers are. That's number one. Get those things figured out. Number two, you have to understand where your salespeople are strong and where your salespeople are weak at a very core level. The only way I've been able to figure that out is to assess them. I've been doing this for 30 years. And, um, you know, usually the pushback I get from people and they say, well, I know where people's at. I, I see their strengths. I see their weaknesses. Well, that's great. It's great that you know. And how do people respond when you tell them what you know? Well, you know, Bill, you just really are terrible picking up the phone. Well, you know, Bill, you're just terrible at closing over here. You know, Bill, you could be prospecting harder. You know, Bill, you could be doing this. How do they take to that news? Because in their ears and their mind, it's, you know, what you have to say is, you know, your opinion. So do an evaluation not for your sake to know what your people are doing. We would expect our sales managers and our managers to know their teams, just like any good coach would. They should know the strengths and the weaknesses. But also good coaches take game film so they can show the players their blind sides. So that's what an evaluation does. That's what an assessment does. It builds self-awareness. So you can get some self-realization going on with your employees about the things they're good at and the things that they struggle with. It's only through self-awareness and self-realization that people truly take a step if they choose to. See, if you build self-realization and self-awareness, you have a blind spot in something you're trying to do, and you choose not to work at it, well, now you have a choice. You can stay in that job or not stay in that job. You can ask for help or you can't ask for help. So if you choose not to do something about it, you're really saying is, you know what, I really don't want to work at it. So how do you get that self realization going, you have to do an assessment that measures a salesperson not on their personality, not on their behavioral style, not on their aptitude for something, but it's exactly on their ability to execute on your sales process, selling to your customers in your time frame. That's all that matters. The difference between top producing salespeople and bottom producing salespeople is simply their ability to execute. Nothing more, nothing less. 
what gets in their way is if they can't execute, are the selling skills they've either acquired or don't have, the selling strengths they either acquired or they don't have, the sales beliefs they required or they don't have. That's what separates the top ones from the bottom ones. So knowing who can execute selling your products and your industry and in your marketplace and your time frame and your margins is key. It's critical. So you can go to your people and say, here's what you need help with. And you can start building that self-realization. They can read about it. They can see it. So do an evaluation. You want more information on that? Just go out to our website, biztalkradioshow.com. We have a piece out there called Nine Steps to Getting Your Sales Force to Overachieve. You can download that. You can also contact us. We'll talk to you about the executional assessment we use to evaluate salespeople. All right. The other thing you can do, now that we know the skills we need to work on, and we've been doing this now for close to two years, and it's based on Dave Kerlin's book, Baseline Selling. We've been going to every one of our clients and getting them to map their sales process going around the ball diamond. And it, it's really a simple metaphor, and the amazing thing about it is everybody gets it. Everybody understands it. You know, at bat is home plate. That's where you're trying to get at bat to get the first base, which is where the suspects are. That's an appointment. A prospect is second base. And that's somebody that you want to do business with. And the key word there is you want to do business with them. Third base is a qualified prospect, meaning they want to do business with you, and there's enough compelling reasons to do so. And then for going third to home, well, that's where you have all the closable deals at. Now, when I put that up on a, on a board, people start to understand what goes in each step of the process. So map out what your sales process is and map out what does it take to get to first base? What would you have to do? We did this for uh, a client the other day, and it took us now pretty much three months to do this. Now, not three months of constant work, but given their meetings and our schedule and getting together, but we focused on an hour at, uh, hour or two at a time, extracting all the knowledge it takes to get from, you know, swinging the bat to getting home. Now, once it's documented, guess what? You can run the bases faster. Plus, you know where you're at in the sales process, so you're not delusional. Meaning, if you have good opportunities sitting in second base, shouldn't you know what the value of those are? Because you have to go to third. And should you know the value of those opportunities at third before you go home? Getting back to our close ratio and how much dollars you need to ask for. Now you get a system that starts to integrate because you know what the activity is. You know what the close ratio is. You know who owns this process. You know the dollar amounts, where they're at in your sales process. You can start measuring real things in real time by doing just some basic, simple things like this. Mapping out what your sales process is. We're back and we're talking about making 2011 better than 2010 and how if you're dependent on the economy to do that for you, you might be in trouble, meaning you're going to have to take more control than just that. I mean, things are getting better if you, if you just pay attention. Uh, corporations are making money. I forget what the number was. It was in the trillions the other day that corporations are holding on to their cash. The good news is they have the cash. The bad news is they're not investing at the level we'd want it to. And there's still some uncertainty out there. You don't have to go much farther than look at the Sunday newspaper and recognize that it's a lot thicker than it was even a year ago and definitely than, thicker than two years ago. That's just a sign of people's optimism that they're willing to advertise. I mean, advertising is nothing more than a promise and a hope that people are going to respond to it. Without a promise and a hope, then you know, chances are they're not going to be out there asking. So things do look up, but 
to be where you want to be. You're going to have to take more control of that. And the tipping point on this is going to be your sales manager. That's how we started out the program, and that's how we're going to bring it back to. Because they're the driving force behind it. You know, most sales managers are very good at generating revenue because that's what they did as a salesperson. But when you switch over to the sales manager's role, you have to be good at driving revenue. And the way you drive revenue is go back to the basics we just talked about. Who owns the process? Activity comes before revenue. What are your close ratios? What is your sales cycle? Now, most managers don't know that because they just intuitively did well at their job. And top producers generally don't know it because they just instinctively know what they should be doing and they just don't waste any time doing it. So from the aspect, if you want your team to get better, then have your sales manager get better. If you are a sales manager, here's what you need to get better at. Number one, coaching. That's pre-call strategizing and post-call debriefing. If you'll just do that on a consistent basis, if you get the concept of shaking people out of bed in the morning, meaning your sales force, and tucking them in at night, then you, do, you will do exceedingly well. Shake them out of bed in the morning. Make sure their head's on straight because selling is nothing more than a transfer of confidence and enthusiasm. And if they're not confident or enthusiastic, then get their head on straight. Tuck them in at night because sales is a tough job and you have to reassure them that everything's going to be better tomorrow. And you reassure them by listening to them and helping them with their struggles during the day. Doing that on a consistent basis, which is really coaching, will take you a long way. Coaching also consists of pre-call strategizing, post-call debriefing. If you do nothing more than what do you want to accomplish going on this sales call, then you'll improve your team double the improvement. I, I was trying to think of a statistic to put on it. Because most people go into a sales call not knowing what they want to accomplish. And by stopping them and saying, hey, before you go, what's the one thing you want to walk out of? What roadblocks do you think you'll run into? How do you think you'll handle it? Those are the three things this. That's it. And when they get done, they come back, you say, how did it go? How did you leave it with them? What was the clear next step? If you can get somebody to answer that question, what did you decide specifically you were going to do next? And think it over, get back to them is not a clear next step. If you can get better at those two things, then you'll improve dramatically. So coaching is number one. And there's plenty of tapes, plenty of books, plenty of resources to do it. But that activity that a sales manager must do, shake them out of bed in the morning, tuck them in at night, pre-call strategizing, post-call debrief, and if you'll do that, it'll put you ahead of almost every other sales manager in America today. The other thing you got to do is just hold them accountable to something each week. Now, what you should be holding them accountable to is their plan, not your plan, because you got them to go and put their plan together how much money they wanted to make, what they're going to do with that money. That's called goal setting, folks, how much activity it takes to get that kind of money. So are you on track to do your plan? Now, if you're not on track to do your plan, then you're not committed to your plan or there's something missing in your plan or something missing we need to augment with to get you committed to your plan. So what's your commitment level to that? So getting people committed by holding them accountable to their plan. And get into, and they'll get committed to their plan if they own it. The only way they'll own it is if it's their plan. So the next thing, other than accountability, you want to be able to do as a sales manager, is just being good at recruiting, picking stronger talent than you have right now, and that's the key. 
because turnover happens naturally, and you, when it happens, you want an upgrade. So the challenge I would have to you, if, since recruiting is so key, is how many candidates are you going to get in front of on a monthly basis? You can start a pool of really good people that you want to talk to. Right now, there's four on my list. There are four people I'm in constant contact with because I'm trying to find them opportunities because they are some of the best salespeople I've ever run across. Now, I've known some of these people now going on four years. But that's how long a relationship has been because I keep looking for good opportunities for them because they're one of the top people. Now, can you say the same if you're in charge of recruiting for your department? Do you know where the top people are? Because sometimes top candidates say no to you because the timing's off. And sometimes they'll say yes to you because the timing's right. But you'll never know until you develop those relationships. I'm always looking for the top people. I'm always interviewing out there, looking for them, talking with them, and keep my eyes and ears open to what can happen if these two opportunities come together. Because one, that's, again, that's one thing you can't control is the timing of that. You can only control if it comes together. And asking them, hey, is the timing right for you to join our team? Do you have bench strength is what I'm talking about. So those are some of the things, and that's the tipping point we want our managers to be able to do, those activities, to tip our team over the top to have a stellar year going into 2011. I think that's enough to get to work on, and if you do those things, you'll have a very good year. Okay. So that's the best of what I know on getting your team to overachieve for next year. A couple things I want to comment on. And rarely do I do comments on this program. More or less about my own experiences and driving revenue and working with company presidents and working with sales teams. But this came across the news the other day, and it got buried in the back of the newspaper. And it should have been front, line, front headlines. And what I'm talking about is uh, the victim of the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, how they're going to get like $7.2 billion back into that fund. So if you've been following that story – um, the estate of one of Madoff's biggest investors agreed to return $7.2 billion that had been withdrawn from Madoff's funds prior to the collapse. The money be used to compensate investors who lost an estimated $20 billion. And this is just a tragic story because Bernie Madoff's son uh, committed suicide here recently. Uh, that's one of the tragedies. The other tragedy, obviously, is the people who lost $20 billion. Think of that. That's with a B, folks. The money belonged to Jeffrey Pacauer, who died of a fatal heart attack at his Palm Beach swimming pool more than a year ago. The money will go to compensate those who lost out when Madoff's investment firm collapsed. The $7.2 billion payout represents the largest forfeiture in law enforcement history. It quadruples the amount of money the authorities have recovered on behalf of Madoff's victims, which means I think they're up to half now. They've gotten $10 billion back. And if you were on the you know the receiving end of that, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a better Christmas. Bacauer was an accountant and longtime friend of Madoff who ran one of the feeder funds that funneled investors' money into his firm. He was never charged with any crime. He died here recently, and who decided to give the money back was his widow. They've been pursuing you know, getting money back into this fund, and uh, Bacauer's uh, widow agreed to surrender the money though she continues to insist her late husband played no role in the fraud. And if you've ever been associated with a con man, I could, 
I could buy this guy's side of the story. Not taking a side on the story, but I could believe he probably knew not much about that. Took his funds out and uh, imagine um, investing funds where you made $7.2 billion. Even more importantly, imagine that you uh, leave a spouse behind who's going to turn that money back over. That payout brings $10 billion back. This got buried on, I don't know, page 10. It should have been headline news. Um, the reason I say it should be headline news, first of all, uh, Madoff obviously shouldn't have been doing what he was doing, but misled a lot of his employees, listed a lot of his investors, uh, running a corporation the wrong way. And that's a huge responsibility. When you're in a leadership role and you own a corporation, it's just a tremendous amount of responsibility to do the right things. And obviously there were some salespeople involved who didn't know what was going on behind closed doors, who were making promises that were really false promises, and how did that mess with them? So the fact that somebody's willing to step up to the plate and say, you know, this just isn't right, and that was the quote that she said, this just isn't right, and is willing to give back the $7.2 billion. Because you know what, folks, by the way, uh, if they had the goods on this guy, uh, if they thought this accountant had stolen that $7.2 billion, this wouldn't be a story. They would have had that money a long time ago, and this guy would have been in jail. This is the magical time of year when we start taking uh, reflection back on how our year went and hope springs eternal on what the next year is going to bring. And the fact that uh, someone was willing to step up to the plate and say, you know, this isn't right and I'm willing to give the money back to make it right just makes this part of the magical season I think that we're in. So as you look at running into uh, your plans for next year, make sure that you're Take that responsibility serious, whatever your position is inside the company, because you have a lot of other people that are depending on you. Okay. A couple other things I want to uh, remind you of. If you're looking for some latest research on um, how to spot top-performing salespeople, it's a major part of the work we do over at my other company, which is the Performance Group. We have the latest research on corporate uh, comparison of the top salespeople versus the salespeople that fail. Top salespeople have the following thing in common. They enjoy selling. They prospect constantly. They have a good outlook, and they're, meaning they're enthusiastic about the job. Now, the problem with that is so do the bottom salespeople. So if that's all you're screening your people for, and I can't tell you how many times I'm involved in screening candidates for clients after the clients get done, you know, putting them through their ropes. They say, well, he follows up, he does this, he's enthusiastic, he's committed, and he keeps asking for the order, and meaning keeps asking for the job, and I think this person ought to, you know, get the job. Well, you're looking at some of the attributes that every salesperson should have, which is enjoying selling, enjoy, enjoy selling prospects constantly and feels good about what they're doing. But that isn't enough to get them where they need to be. So if you want to look at uh, the latest research on that, drop me an email at uh, info at biztalkradioshow.com. That's info at biztalkradioshow.com. And we'll make sure that we send that out to you. Okay. That'll help you out in terms of staffing what you're looking for and what to spot a top performers. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website at www.biztalkradioshow.com or you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. If you want to learn the strategies how to take your sales force to the next level, you can contact the Performance Group at 800-550-9509 
or visit us on the web at www.pmgllc.net.